Welcome to FEPS Talks, the podcast series at the Foundation for European Progressive Studies. Find out more about us on FEPS-Europe.eu. Hello, um, my name is Lance Lander, Secretary General of FEPS, the Foundation for European Progressive Studies, and this is FEPS Talks, uh, the podcast series of uh, FEPS. Um, I'm today in London and I'm uh, meeting Francis O'Grady, the Secretary General of TUC. Um, and I think in the post-election uh, period, it's very interesting uh, to discuss uh, what the working class means today in the United Kingdom. The conditions of the working class in England is a topic um, uh, since Engels many have studied and wrote about. But uh, there was a long period when this expression was not frequently used. And suddenly the post-election analysis brought back the issue that somehow the working class is a decisive political factor. And um, uh, a lot of commentary suggested that we had the election result what we had in December because of a major shift among the working class, especially in the north of England, uh, towards the Conservative Party. And uh, this is also apparently or allegedly connected with a shift towards an anti-European position uh, against uh, free movement uh, and against many things that the European Union uh, has represented. And people just wanted to get Brexit done and they trusted more the Conservatives rather than the Labour Party to deliver on this promise. Uh, Francis, what is your opinion about this? Because you have been a representative of the working class as a trade union leader for a very long time. And you have participated in debate in these debates before and after the referendum. And um, what is your take? Well, we're on four this? weeks on from uh, Brexit, so and it looks like it's going to be a hard right Brexit, uh, which the TUC believes will be bad for people's jobs and their rights and public services. But I think the right in this country used Brexit very successfully in driving a wedge in Labour's traditional electoral voter coalition. Uh, So they were much better at it than the left was in terms of driving any wedges in terms of the right's uh, traditional electoral coalition. How much of this is about class? How much of it's about age and geography mm-hmm. is another question. And I think what is interesting about the debate is um, that a lot of old stereotypes of who is working class in Britain today have been rolled out as part of this debate. Uh, to listen to some people, you would think all working class people were white, male, and used to work in a pit or a steel plant. And while, of course, they are part of the working class, that is not the whole story today. Um, The modern working class is as likely to be working in an Amazon workhouse or, uh, you know, a coffee chain or in the care sector. um, And clearly, obviously, is diverse and includes women as Mm. well as men. Uh, So I think that's interesting. And I think what's also very interesting is that we're used to talking about occupational segregation 
in terms of class, in terms of gender. But what we're increasingly seeing is age segregation. So if you Mm. like, the new working class coming up is even more concentrated into service sector work, often low paid and undervalued and very often on insecure contracts. Do you use the verb precariat? Personally, I don't because (laughs) it's like... One of those words that I'm not sure many people use down the pub. Um, but, but what we do know is that in Britain, there are nearly four million workers on zero hours contracts or temporary agency work or bogus self-employment. Mm-hmm. And so that's about people not knowing from one week to the next what shift they're working, not able to plan their family finances, mm-hmm. not able to raise a family, not able to... Uh, claim any compensation if their shifts are cancelled at short notice and certainly denied all the basic rights that unions have fought for over many years. So I think there's a complicated picture and I think there needs to be more thought and analysis about the way that capitalism has changed and therefore class has changed because uh, I think we're seeing a very some very big and important shifts. Uh, you know, you look at the wealth lists nowadays, uh, for sure, finance is still big, but the new tech giants are mm-hmm. gobbling up ever greater shares of not just wealth, but power. Mm-hmm. And that has a profound impact on business models, how people work, their, you know, our day-to-day experience of our working lives. Um, and while we might have increasingly a kind of super-skilled tier at the top of the workforce. Increasingly, you're seeing this growth of a kind of low-paid, insecure, undervalued army mm. who have very few rights. Now, mm. that poses big challenges for trade unionism too, because I think if we have a digital economy, we need digital trade unionism. Our job has Absolutely. always been to mirror and match and surpass uh, the way that employers organise to get ahead of the game, to be able to get our fair shares, because we know that trade union membership still means better pay, safer working environments, um, more flexible, positively flexible work for people who have caring responsibilities, and greater pay solidarity between the top and the bottom. Mm. From this point of view, if we compare British capitalism to the continental models, what would be your assessment? Well, I think, you know, one of, one of the issues around the EU referendum campaign was that we were defending, shall we say, a less than perfect model, uh, where many people felt, you know, for a good 10 years, we hadn't had any major new initiatives uh, that would signal that the European Commission cared not mm. just about big multinationals and uh, Uh, businesses, uh, but cared about workers and citizens and their working lives too. And what we desperately needed, and perhaps what we're ironically enough beginning to see emerge now, is a a new social agenda for the 21st century that would recognise the new challenges that working Mm. people face and offer some protection. However, What I'm also clear about is that Europe is the only major trading bloc in the world that even has any form of minimum labour standards uh, to cut out unfair competition and stop one group of workers being exploited to undercut another group of workers. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, that's why 
whatever happens going forward, whatever trade deals we're talking about, not just the EU, but around the world, we will be fighting for Mm labour standards and decent labour standards to be included. One out of these standards is the minimum wage, um, where now there's a new debate at the European level. And it is absolutely surprising because just a couple of years ago, it would have been uh, uh, impossible to bring such an initiative to the European table. Uh, the UK has uh, 20 plus years experience with yes. the minimum wage. Mm. What is um, your assessment? Is, yeah. it, is it working well? Is, is, has it turned out to be a, a game changer well, or I, less than that? I was one of the people in my own union when I was a rep who campaigned for a national minimum wage. Um, again, I think the I think the arguments need to be respected on both sides, uh, including within the trade union movement, because I do understand the worries about how a national minimum wage can be used as a maximum <laughs> in many jobs and industries, particularly for women and young workers, uh, or an anchor on pay. Uh, but I think. You know, so you're always taking a judgment. My judgment is that it's important to have that floor, that safety net that nobody will fall below to have an effective way of enforcing it. And then for unions to have strong rights to organise and collectively bargain on top of that floor. Because what we do know, for example, in Britain, is that the national minimum wage certainly isn't a real living wage. Uh, you know, it's it's not... If you, if you do a job, it seems to me you should be paid a fair wage. Yes. And the definition of a fair wage for me is workers actually getting a voice, the mm. opportunity to bargain what that wage is. And of course, the national minimum wage in Britain, we have a low pay commission that brings together um, independence, representatives of business and representatives of unions to recommend to government what the rate should be. So at mm. least we have a seat at the table. And that you know, for me, is really important. And I think the results, again, if we're truthful, have been mixed. Mm. You know, we have short memories sometimes. Mm. I remember there were, you know, there were uh, very large numbers of workers working on a pittance before Mm -hmm. the national minimum wage. Yes. And everything that goes with that, because if they're being paid poorly, they're usually being treated really poorly too. Um, so, you know, that kind of lifting people up is important. But I also know there are employers whose response to the national minimum wage was merely to de-layer, to take out the team leaders, the supervisors, mm-hmm. the four men and women, um, so that they would effectively just manage their pay budget. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's the same pay budget, but distributed differently, cut jobs, cut hours. And that's why it can never be enough on its own. It's why unions need strong rights too. But, you know, we're now facing a very significant conservative majority in mm. the um, UK. It will be very hard to win anything on the floor of the House. Mm-hmm. Uh, we will do our job in we always believe workers should get a fair hearing. So we mm-hmm. represent workers' interests to whichever government is in power of whatever colour. But I would say I think... The Conservative Party have got problems too. How do they sustain this new electoral coalition, Mm -hmm. which stretches from the wealthy shires of England to these blue-collar towns, where we know from our polling that workers still feel they need a new deal, Mm -hmm. they still need um, stronger rights, 
And ironically enough, in terms of the results from our polling, those switch voters who moved from Labour uh, to the Conservatives in blue-collar areas support our agenda for stronger rights Mm -hmm. even more than Labour voters. So so how is the Conservative government going to maintain their support when we know... Uh, that their ambition, those workers' ambition, is for a much fairer economic deal in Britain. Yeah, but this comes to the promise that there is some kind of left version of the Brexit, that the Brexit would free the United Kingdom to do, Mm. let's put it this way, more socialism uh, than what you find on the continent, where there was austerity and uh, a lot of harsh measures at the time of the financial crisis. Yes, well, I... Um, there, there was certainly a group of trade unionists, small group, I would say. Only three of our trade unions voted for leave out of 49, and the TUC position was Remain. Um, but they're called Lexiteers, mm-hmm. uh, criticising Europe from the left, and there's a long tradition of that in Britain. And without doubt, I have to say, I felt really angry when I saw how the Troika treated mm. the programme countries, you know, Ireland was restructured, restructured almost entirely on the back of workers' wage cuts. Uh, you know, it was in real terms. So, uh, let alone what happened in Greece and elsewhere. So, of course, there were raw feelings, and it wasn't a great time, if yes. you like, for left remainers to be making the case. It was terrible. In a referendum, it was lousy timing. Uh, but as I say, I. Personally, I've never been a fan of the idea of socialism in one country. Mm. Uh, uh, This isn't dreamy idealism. I'm an internationalist because I believe capital is international. And if workers don't show solidarity across borders, then we're in trouble because that is the way that business is organised. It's common sense to me that we have to be internationalists too. Um, But, you know, I I respect other views. I think they're wrong. I think... What has also happened in Britain, which is really disturbing, not unique to Britain, but we've seen it in many countries, this growth of not just the far right, but right wing populist Mm. ideas. Um, And of course, that always involves Mm. scapegoating of those very often least able to stand Mm. up for themselves. Uh, In particular, we've seen really ugly politics around migration, immigration, race, faith, increasingly women, sexuality Mm -hmm. too, uh, the traditional targets, uh, if you like. And, you know, I am always very clear that low pay and exploitation isn't the fault of workers. It's the fault of those who are exploiting workers. Can you clarify or summarise what, in your view, the British workers are losing with Brexit? Because you argued yeah. you know, four years ago for yeah. staying in the EU. Yeah. And uh, you know, probably because you believe that there is a high risk and now probably a certainty of losing certain rights, standards by leaving the European Union. Yeah. I mean, this, this wasn't just a matter of the heart, although I think there is an honourable history of the EU as a peace project and, you know, trade wars tend to lead to real wars. So, you know, we should never underestimate the importance of that. But we did do a hard-headed analysis of what we thought the risk would be. We, we looked at the impact on jobs, particular industries. You take 
something like motor, the car industry, uh, the impact of uh, very complex supply chains and any disruption and additional costs and paperwork basically mm -hmm. on that, what that will mean for investment decisions. We've already seen investment plummet in particular industries because of the decision to leave the EU. Now, by the way, uh, you know, for anybody accusing me of scaremongering, I'm quite certain that other kinds of investment and other kinds of jobs uh, may arise and fill that vacuum. But what kind of jobs, what yes. quality of jobs, will they be organised jobs with decent paying conditions? I doubt it. I mm. feel we're going to go further down that road towards mm. the American cheap and easy to hire and fire model uh, where workers have much less power than they do mm. in Europe. So there's the issue about jobs. There's the issue about the level playing field on workers' rights. This isn't about sovereignty. Any member of the European Union or any um, trading partner with the European Union can improve on those rights. But I think it's uh, right that we should have minimum standards mm -hmm. written into a trade deal between the UK and EU. Mm -hmm. Our nearest neighbours, uh, that pledge not to undercut each other on the back of uh, workers' rights should be easy for any sensible government to sign up to if they are confident mm -hmm. that not just now but into the future workers' rights in Britain will always be at least as good as or better than uh, those in the rest of Europe. I don't mm -hmm. trust the government on this one, I'm afraid, because they have form. Uh, individual cabinet members in particular have uh, really opposed the working time directive, mm. uh, which puts safe limits on working hours and provides for the right to paid holidays. Uh, I don't trust them. I think they will look to chip those rights away perhaps not by abolishing them, but maybe by removing the rights from workers in small firms to start mm -hmm. with, and maybe medium-sized firms, and eventually you drag down everybody else. Um, so we know that there's a lot of hostility to the very idea that workers should have those universal protections. Um, and I do expect to see uh, attacks on that in the years ahead. But meanwhile, we will fight them every step of the way and try and get not just promises from this mm. government, they're very keen on promising they're going to protect rights. Let's have written guarantees. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, um, this government um, is clearly very good in smoke and mirrors. And <laughs> the recent um, publication of um, a, a framework for labour mobility, points-based system, Mm. is probably a good example of that because they try to present something uh, to exclude low-skilled workers mm. uh, from uh, the UK labour market. Yeah. But um, I was reading a blog by Simon Ren Lewis, um, a distinguished economist, about this, who practically uh, offered a reading of this, saying that you know, in this perspective, the proposal is to have more British workers in low-paid jobs. That's the translation of uh, this. What do you expect yeah. in, in, in terms of uh, you know, this kind of new control of migration? Yeah, well, of course, we haven't seen the detail, but the signs are not good. Mm -hmm. uh, this is a government that's very keen on PR, uh, that friendly-sounding Australian points-based mm -hmm. system, 
uh, in reality, if you go to the heart of it, is about putting more power in the hands of employers mm. uh, and less power in the hands of migrant workers who, if their visa is dependent on their employer, how easy is it going to be to stand up and speak up when uh, that employer is behaving badly? Uh, you know, I'm also very cynical, mm. I'll be honest. I think as soon as we see lobbies from particular businesses in particular sectors, they'll be handing out exemptions like confetti. Mm -hmm. uh, so, but generally what it means is that instead of workers being able to pick and choose their employer mm. and bring their families and all the other you know, human rights that we would mm. expect uh, and demand to be associated with immigration, is that uh, we'll see uh, you know, employers cracking the whip and holding all the cards in terms of that employment relationship. And that always leaves workers vulnerable to exploitation mm. or they end up moving into the grey economy, which ends up mm. undercutting other workers. So our approach has always been, yes, of course we need young people in this country um, to uh, have uh, more training, more apprenticeships, more skills and good mm. job opportunities. But we also need to resurrect that basic principle that every worker should get the rate for the job. Mm. Wherever they come from, men and women, young and old, people should be paid a fair rate for mm. a fair day's labour. And that's the best way to uh, crack down on bad employers who, after all, are the source of this problem. They're the source of people's worries that around undercutting and so on. It's, it's not the workers that are to blame. It is the bad employer that needs to be right. controlled. Right. Um, if I can have a last question. Um, we started with the working class. And in a way, even if uh, the discourse is a bit distorted, we have to admit that the European Union failed to impress a significant part of uh, the working class um, as a social market economy and, mm. and a union that really cares mm. uh, for the employees. Now, in my view, to prevent uh, further Brexit-like situations, I think it has to be taken very seriously and mm. the European Union really has to go for it and mm. reinforce uh, not only an image but also the practice mm. of uh, being a more caring uh, mm. uh, union also at the workplace. Um, what do you think the EU could do or what do you think a kind of you know couple of decisive steps uh, mm. uh, in direction in this direction apart from what we mentioned already a coordination effort on the minimum wage yeah well i i agree with you i think the risk is that uh, the response seems to be uh, too piecemeal maybe a bit lukewarm rather than bold and imaginative and fit for the 21st century because the truth is we have seen this dramatic shift in wealth and power. Workers share the wealth that they produce uh, declining and, and this just, you know, working lives have got a lot tougher, particularly for young people, a lot tougher, a lot more insecure. So I think there needs to be quite a bold recalibration of what what does it mean to have a decent uh, job? What does it mean to have dignity at work in the 21st century with all the pressures that we're facing? And, 
you know, the ETUC, I think, has done a brilliant job in setting out a very clear programme for a new deal at work. And as you say, the minimum wage is part of it. But, you know, the UK isn't the only country where we've seen the rise of zero hours contracts or other forms of insecure work. It's not the um, only place where we've seen issues around mental health problems rising uh, because of the intensity of mm. work. Uh, it's not the only place where we've seen, instead of tech being used as a force for liberation to create more satisfying work, you know, many of the warehouses we're talking about, it's used to track workers, measure their work, put them in competition with each other, kind of tighten that screw mm. on stress at work and demean people. So, you know, there's a whole new agenda that needs to address the modern labour market and deal with the worst aspects of it, but also, you know, appeal to the ordinary worker who may not be on the edge, uh, may not be on the sharpest end, but nevertheless should have a right to expect a voice at work, a trade union voice, um, dignity, a fair wage, Mm. Uh, the right to bargain, the right to organise and real health and safety for the modern world that very often is not just about physical ill health uh, or injury, but increasingly is about well-being. Thank you very much uh, for your time, Francis O'Greedy. Um, we had um, a very nice discussion here in London and I'm sure some of these issues, what work means for the future society and what Europe will look like after Brexit, we can come back um, also at a later stage. Uh, thanks again. Thank you. Thank you for your attention. If you found our conversation interesting, do not hesitate to share it on social media with the hashtag FEPS Talks. More is yet to come. Stay tuned.